From Dublin City University, I'm Dave Robbins, and this is Code Red, the climate change podcast from Ireland's Centre for Climate and Society. Hello and welcome to another episode of our Code Red podcast. This instalment focuses on three different conversations we had at the Earth Rising Festival at the Irish Museum of Modern Art this autumn. We talked to three people with different perspectives on how food and art can play a role in helping us understand climate change and get involved in climate action. And you'll hear another voice asking the questions. Pat Brereton, one of the founding directors of our research centre and now a professor emeritus at DCU, has grabbed the microphone away from me for this episode. First up is Annie Fletcher, director of IMA, who talks about the role a large public art institution can play in telling the story of climate change and encouraging climate action. So there's something really amazing about that zooming out from the bigger overwhelming questions into a moment of intimacy or connection. And I think that's what culture and art does. Next, we are delighted to have a chance to hear from author Dan Saladino. Dan is well known as the host of BBC Radio 4's The Food Programme and the author of Eating to Extinction. In this new book, Dan argues that our ever-growing dependence on a narrow range of animal and plant species leaves us very vulnerable to climate change. And I think that idea of knowing the story and knowing how we got here is, is really important because I think the levels of meat consumption that we've become accustomed to or familiar with today is a relatively new thing. And I think that's an important <laughs> kind of lost story in a way. And lastly, we meet artist Amelia Caulfield, who shares her thoughts on harnessing creativity and right intention to generate climate activism. So some of the examples of some of the intentions I have display on display here, foster dialogue, alter perception, build community, transform someone's experience or reveal reality. One that I love is inspire dreaming. First, Annie Fletcher, director of IMA. How can IMA contribute to telling the story of climate change and how can it encourage the behavioural change necessary for climate action? How do you see IMA functioning in that role? Great question. I mean, it's a very ambitious ask, isn't it? <laughs> but actually, I was thinking, somebody asked me earlier, you know, what do you know about climate change? And I thought, maybe I don't know everything and I don't have the answers, but what I do know is how to mobilise a museum for civic action. And I think that's the really exciting thing that Emma can do. It can be a listener, it can be a convener of expertise, and it can be a space for actually joy. And that sounds very, you know hippy-dippy on some levels but I mean we are dealing with encountering kind of increasing levels of despair and depression and anxiety and I think there's something really important about that idea of assembly and making space and ultimately going back to the very classic modernist idea of what a museum is as a pedagogical space as a civic space as a public space um, and really taking that very seriously how does it convene um, and engage with a public around uh, the most pressing issues of our time? So to put simply, 
listen, be a listening museum, not an authoritative broadcasting museum, always. We can broadcast some things, but we can do all of these things. We can walk and chew gum, as I always say. Um, and this festival, I suppose, is all about that, that space-making for a citizens' assembly, in a way. Yeah, I was interested hearing you talk about this notion of a citizens' assembly. Uh, where do you see culture could feed into a citizens' assembly, and how could IMA help promote that environmental citizenship more so? Well, it's the funny thing about art, I think, is, you know, whether it's music, as we heard earlier, or theatre, or literature, or visual art, it, it creates a kind of an intimacy, right? A kind of zooming in from the big idea to to a kind of um, an expression of it that is embodied by a human being who wrote it or developed it. So there's something really amazing about that zooming out from the bigger, overwhelming questions into a moment of intimacy or connection. And I think that's what culture and art does. And so that, and that's a powerful tool. That's a powerful tool uh, to kind of allow for a different kind of space for thinking. So I think that can work for all kinds of uh, issues. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily the obligation of the artist to do that, but I think it's interesting to understand the capacity of art to, um, to mobilize a kind of intimacy and, and, and combat that sense of overwhelm or powerlessness. And the other thing that art does so well is it describes, it describes, it gives us a sense of uh, understanding uh, um, and, and literally imagining. It's a space in which we can kind of uh, find agency, I think, to think differently. Mm. Thinking of sustainability, which is on everyone's lips at the moment, where do you see or how do you see reducing the carbon footprint of this fantastic set of buildings? Do you see that as... as as an important strategy or, or tell us a little bit about where Emma is going in that road? Again, great question. Thank you. Because it's, it's, been, it's been on, I think, most of our minds as museums for a long time. Um, because ultimately you could argue that there are big buildings that aren't particularly sustainable at all. And we've been just been part of this huge, you know, uh, uh, sort of capital build, uh, this wonderful kind of promise from government to develop and uh, redevelop our cultural institutions, which is so important. But I'm kind of convinced, not only because of the historical importance of this site, but also the, the wonderful 48 acres, uh, that we could be the jewel in the crown of a kind of sustainable, passive um, a kind of environmental uh, refurb or rebuild uh, you know I mean these these story the, these the, the walls the thick walls of this building tell a particular story of of survival and of climate control in a particular way and um, we should lean into and use so I'm very very fascinated by how we might actually reoccupy the building rework the building as sustainably as possible but actually rejoice in that you know, I'm very interested in that idea of analog technologies that maybe go back to heritage technologies to think sustainability and that this, because it has been relatively uninterfered with and so brilliantly kind of an intelligently restored by the OPW over the years, there's some there's there's a lesson in that, you know. I don't feel like building a big diamond in the middle of it like the Louvre. <laughs> you know, we we have definitely very um important technological needs as a a major international museum even in terms of environmentals but there are so many great examples right now of how 
uh, we push towards a kind of more sustainable model. So let Emma be the model, you know. We're at the we're at the cusp of great change. So if we take it really seriously, we could be that model. You know? Yeah, the, the minister noted this morning uh, it's going to have solar solar power energy in. Yeah. In. So again, that do you see that as part of a sort of a, a, a sort of a, a best fit practice? Absolutely, and I mean, you know, I've I've taken my time in trying to understand not only the site. Um, um, but I was determined not to build reactively as soon as I came in here, despite the demands on our day-to-day kind of museum needs. It seems really incredibly important to kind of um, reuse, rework and rethink intelligently all of the, the infrastructure we have on the site and to think exactly about alternative energy sources. So it's, it's, it's a really, we're very committed to this journey, but we're very committed to also thinking it out loud and collectively, because I think we should model the best behavior if we can. And just finally, how would you measure the success of Earth Rising and where do you see it going into the future? How, what's your plans into the future? I mean, I hate to use the metrics of numbers, but I can genuinely say that last year it was, you know, a kind of my idea. I thought it could be somewhere between Bloom Festival and the Young Scientists Awards. You know, I really thought this kind of beautiful, beautiful grounds and this space where people could peruse things and understand the importance of kind of... Uh, in a space during COVID, I thought, wow, what if we would really harness creativity and allow architects, scientists, uh, artists to kind of come together and really connect? And um, I didn't know who was going to turn up and we had 9,000 people knocking on our door. So to me, that's already success. And success just means the idea that we're convening a community, right? So just the energy of it, the, the, the feeling of it, that's, that's how I measure success. So, I mean, I hope it becomes not necessarily bigger, but just um, that the community that is formed sustains itself and becomes more and more powerful. I suppose that would be amazing. That they start telling us what to do would be even better. That was Annie Fletcher, IMA director, looking forward to future Earth Rising festivals at the museum. And now to food, the preparation of which, some would argue, is an art form in itself. However, the way in which we produce and consume food has played a role in the climate change and biodiversity crises that we now face. Professor Pat Brereton caught up with Dan Saladino after his talk at Earth Rising to discuss with him how the story of food can be used to leverage change and how the loss of food diversity has created some of the problems we now seek to address. My name's Dan Saladino. I am a broadcaster and journalist and for more than 15 years now specialising in food and farming stories. Uh, and during that time I became increasingly interested in food diversity, so stories of how humans have spread around the world and created food systems and resulting in what we might think of as traditional foods. So to try and get to the, the deep history of why uh, different people eat different foods around the world and that resulted in a book called Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them and that was published in 2021 and I'm currently working on my next book which is going to be building on these ideas of global food stories, diversity, resilience um, and yeah, why we need to 
see food as one of the big, big issues in, in our future. And how do we counter the dominant food production model of, of monocultural production, mass, produ mass production? And how, how do we do that since, as we argue a lot of the times with regards to food, that food has got cheaper and cheaper and people expect food to be cheaper? How do we sort of make it, how do we encourage people to see food and give more value to food? Uh, I think the reason why I have found food and farming to be such a, a powerful uh, area of, of journalism and storytelling is because we become so disconnected, not, not just from our food and where it comes from, but also the, the story of our food. So I think what I've really wanted to do in my work in, in radio and in the book is to tell that story of how did we get here and what does that history reveal to us about some of the decisions or some of the trends we've taken in the last 100 or 150 years and how does that history inform us going, going forward. So I think the idea that for most of our existence as a species we have been dependent on adapting and, and being closely connected to our environments, our local environments, and understanding what kind of plants and animals exist in a particular part of the world and how can you survive as a human being uh, with that knowledge, to one in which certainly in the last century, a process of homogenization has unfolded, driven by technological breakthroughs, such as crop science at the end of the 19th century, the development of industrial fertilizers at the beginning of the 20th, the so-called Green Revolution after the Second World War, in which we developed high-yielding crops, and also with animals as well. You can see step by step the logical progression towards a system of increasing uniformity of how we produce food and that then uh, also helped with the financial system, the financial architecture that emerges after the Second World War, that more of the world becomes more the same. To do that we have had to override nature so that we have created um, more uniform and, and monocultural production systems uh, that res closely resemble each other in different parts of the world regardless of the different environmental factors at play. And the cost of that is now uh, coming to light, and that's the impact on planetary health and human health. So we've been successful because of those technological breakthroughs that I've mentioned, at creating huge numbers of calories. But what we are seeing is the extractive nature of that system on soil, um, on, on all kinds of resources, fresh water use, for example, and the impact of uh, pollution, and now increasingly, which is impacting on many government budgets, the impact of human health of producing vast amounts of calories, but not particularly of the kind of foods that we need. So I think it's coming into sharp focus. The system that has emerged in the last 50 or 60 years, um, which initially seemed like a really important breakthrough to stave off hunger around the world, but the true cost of that system is now coming into sharp focus. And I ho hope some of my work reflects on that very quick shift that took place from um, diverse systems around the world to that homogenized trend underway. And the optimism really is that if we can make that great leap that was made, or that big shift seen in the Green Revolution, for example, 
That took place within a few decades. If we can make that change then, then surely we can make another change going forward to correct some of the problems uh, caused by that system. And what, have you got any solutions for those problems? I mean, we talk a lot about food security being a problem now because of this drive towards homo homogeneity, which is causing huge problems across the world. Are there any quick fix solutions or is it going to take as long as the Green Revolution to try and re-pivot the food system to be more sustainable into the longer term? I think that story of those te technological breakthroughs creating the food system we have today, many people would argue that the more recent science has shown us that that's been quite a reductionist approach. That if you, you know, take new crop genetics, use fossil fuels to produce fertilizers, and then use soil as a blank canvas to produce lots and lots of calories, it, it's a very simplistic approach to what is an extremely complex environment that is the combination of plants, animals, soil, microbes, all of these things that we now better understand than we did 60 or 70 years ago. So I, I, I think um, we, are, we now are being informed by the importance of diversity. And by that, I mean the importance of genetic diversity of crops, of, of animal breeds, and also of the diversity of, of different farming systems as well. When it comes to crop, crop genetics and animal breeds, um, what, what we're seeing is that the thousands of years of domestication and farming that took place before, which did lead to thousands and thousands of different varieties of whether it's wheat, rice, um, maize and so on, and also the different um, breeds of animals that were adapted to their particular conditions in different parts of the world. That now is a resource in a world in which we do need to reduce our dependence on fossil, fossil fuels, for example, or we are now seeing the spread of um, diseases because of the genetics, the, you know, the uniform genetics of, of different animals uh, and what that has created in, in terms of intensive systems. So I, I think... Yeah, diversity, diversity of, of different foods and different um, animal breeds. The science is showing us that that matters and there's now investment taking place in different parts of the world to try and bring greater diversity back into the food system. Um, will it happen quickly enough in, in terms of, of new systems? I think that takes glo a concerted global effort. What's been lacking in big set-piece um, international conversations, and you can say the COP process as part of that. Food and farming have been pretty much absent from those, those big global meetings that do inform policy, but that's changing. And so I mean, we're having this conversation in September 2023. Uh, this year's COP now actually has time allocated to discuss food and farming. One of the big questions is about global subsidies, which are between six to $800 billion a year being invested by governments. So that's public money underpinning the current food system that we have, the status quo. And I think on the agenda now is can that um, investment of public money be used to start to rapidly take us towards a different kind of food system in which we're moving away from what now looks like fragile, less re resilient monocultural production systems to more diverse ones and also starting to inform agricultural policy 
with the, fine, with the question of what happens at the end of the process. What food do we need to be growing that's good for us, for our health, and also planetary health as well? So I think those questions are starting to emerge in global discourse, and I think that's a, that's a really positive um, reason for optimism. Also, I guess people are now wondering how resilient is the food system in light of um, climate change. And, and other weather patterns that are impacting on crop yields and so on. For example, in the UK, more money is being invested from research funding for crop scientists to look at different types of plants, different crops that can be grown that might be more resilient to disease, to drought, to, to unpredictable weather patterns. So I think there's a lot of change happening. And then finally, I, I guess in the food industry itself, we're seeing some of the big global names. Unilever have put themselves forward as being at the forefront of investing in what they're describing as uh, regenerative agriculture, describing that uh, you know, they, they've allocated a, a fund of a billion dollars to change the way that they um, have a supply chain that, that provides you know, rice or, or tomatoes, and they're saying that they are starting, for example, in rice cultivation to reduce levels of methane emissions because of new production techniques. So I think a lot is happening uh, and it's, it's happening throughout the supply chain. Um, but it, I think it goes back to what I was saying about the global subsidies that I think we do need some big set piece global decisions at COPs and World Food Summits uh, to really make a concerted, concerted global um, a collaborative effort to, to have the next stage um, in uh, global food production. We've had the green revolution, we need another revolution in how we produce food. Fascinating. But just pivot towards audiences and consumers and the notion of, of global citizenship around food and the need for food cultures. How can they become more empathetic towards food justice and equity across the world? Can we use consumption as a way of sort of democratizing food and yet we have a proliferation of food programs that are all almost celebrating uh, diversity in food mm. in in almost strange ways sometimes but mm. they're hugely popular can we mobilize these mediated forms of food practices in the media to sort of drive an agenda to sort of dovetail with what you're saying around the need for top-down policy change and a new revolution in, mm. in food production. So do you see the, you know, the, the circular way of connecting production and consumption? Mm. Well, I, th I think in many ways the popularity of food in media, in you know, books, television programmes, I think there's a huge disconnect between the consumption of, of programmes and you know, stories around food. Um, yeah, always struck by the um, huge numbers of cookery books, recipe books that are published, the television programmes that are made, and yet in the background, really you know, declining engagement in the kitchen of most people with, with, with food and cooking. And also you know, stories of, of, of um, celebration of, of diversity, when actually a lot of that diversity is quite superficial, that it does come from um, mostly 
a system of commodity crops that are processed to give the appearance of diverse foods. And where there is diversity also, it's the same kind of diversity that's increasingly found in different parts of the world. But I think food is an increasingly important area in which we need more information, better education and, and more engagement of, of uh, food politics. And the reason being, I mean, it's, it's the one thing that we all make decisions on uh, multiple times a day. Those decisions do, in many ways, make an impact on the market, on the behaviour of retailers, and ultimately also on the, I, I guess, the initiatives and, and the policy decisions of, of governments as well. So it, we have it within our capability. Obviously, we're faced in many ways with access and financial choices, but food is the place in which we make these crucial decisions. And at the same time, we have a failing food system in which many people are going hungry or it's causing many people to be un unwell through uh, obesity as well. So I think the idea of food justice and the right to food is increasingly important. And that doesn't necessarily mean you know, the right to be given food. or it, What it means is that we, we have the agency we have, um, wherever we are in the world, whichever community we, we are in, uh, the opportunity to access good food. And I think probably the big trend that has been underway in the last hundred or so years that I've, I've been describing is one in which we've got a concentration of power globally as well. So whether that's seeds or whether that's global production and distribution, um, power in, in, in fewer and fewer hands. So I, I think that's one of the, the great issues of our time, really, is that we as individuals need to find ways in which we can start to make uh, an impact and create alternative ways of food being produced and distributed. And this is where I think technology really comes into its own. There's a story in my book, Eating to Extinction, of being in China, meeting a farmer who was saving an extremely rare and important type of um, rice. And I was standing in the middle of this region in southwestern China, scratching my head almost, thinking, how is this elderly farmer, he was in his 70s, getting his rice to market? It was in a, uh, a very isolated village. And he took out his phone and showed me the screen and the WeChat app. And he was using his phone to yeah, sell his rice communicate, have conversations with people in Beijing, in Chengdu, in all, all different parts of China. So I think we are, we are faced with huge challenges, but I think the fact that we have a, a digital kind of form of localism now, that we can engage and create supply chains that are different to the mainstream, that is incre incredibly promising for the future. Fascinating. I, I just love the example of technology. I mean, in mm. film studies and eco-film studies, we were trying to map how slow, the slow food, food movement could connect with slow cinema. Uh, but I'll just round off with a couple mm. of just quick fire questions and just take them as you see them. There's a big debate, obviously, about seasonal food consumption and how to encourage or reinforce more sustainability into the future and how to sort of play into that is obviously problematic with media where it's gratification, instant wanting food 24-7, uh, every no sort of time limits. Linked to that, we have a big debate in Ireland about obviously farming is very meat-based mm. and the debate between veganism and vegetarianism is 
almost a religious way of life versus meat eating as part of the DNA in Ireland. So how can we democratise food without making it as just polarising and setting people up against that food should be bringing people together rather than pulling them apart? Do you have any quick solutions for dealing with that? Because so, food can be quite contentious as a mm. debate. Mm. Well, uh, the approach I've taken um, through radio and through books is storytelling. And, and I think that idea of knowing the story and knowing how we got here is, is really important because I think the levels of meat consumption that we've become accustomed to or familiar with today is a relatively new thing. Yeah. And I think that's an important <laughs> kind of lost story in a way. So I, I think um, in, in, in my book, for example, I've told the story of a, the, probably one of the most humble ingredients in, in the world, which is the lentil. Um, and the fact that wherever you look, um, certainly ac across Europe, the importance of peas, beans and lentils as a source of protein in most food cultures was, was incredibly important but faded away, certainly in the 19th century into the 20th. But actually, once you tell that story of how important and how diverse and how delicious, in fact, some of these foods are, that has been a source of inspiration for people to go back through um, the history of those foods, recover some of the lost diversity, and create really successful commercial businesses. So I think that these are really powerful stories of what went before, what can be reclaimed, and how it's beneficial not only to us but also the planet and can be something that is delicious. Um, I think that, that is just something people need to be given the opportunity to experience. So that, that, that is, in, in my limited um, capacity as a storyteller, those are the kind of things that I think are quite empowering. That's fantastic, Dan. I mean, really impressive. Uh, I mean, we could go on for hours on, on this. Is there any, any final sort of message you'd, you think is worth sort of distilling to people who want to use food as a sort of a way to connect with the climate crisis? Mm. Well, I, I think... There are so many benefits that are converging that are underpinned by new and recent science. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the idea of diversity, again, one of the big themes of my work. Um, so I think new, latest science is telling us that, that diversity is important to our individual health. So the idea that we have this gut microbiome of trillions of microbes that the more diverse our gut microbiome, the more beneficial that is to our physical and mental health. The more diverse our diets, the more diverse our gut microbiomes are. So I think, just think about that as an individual um, um, scenario, um, relevant to all of us. Um, but also that, that kind of diversity, particularly the diversity of plants um, and legumes, as I mentioned, peas, beans and uh, that is also increasingly important and relevant to agricultural systems. Yeah. So we saw with Ukraine, um, farmers having to rethink how they produce food because of the rocketing prices of, of, um, of fertilizer yeah. produced with uh, huge amounts of, of um, natural gas, so fossil fuels. So again, they're having to think about diversity of production systems and crop rotations using these legumes as well. Um, so it, you, you can almost see that, that we're, you know, things are catching up with us. And there are these um, global events and also trends that are making us having to rethink this relatively short period of um, fossil fuel-based 
food production to lessen our dependence on that. And some of the clues as to where we can go next do lie in the past. So some of those more traditional agricultural systems where we have used leguminous plants to fertilise the, the soil, or that diets have been based more around peas, beans and lentils with some um, addition of, of animal products as well. Um, it's not about going back, it's about being inspired by what has been in the past that could be um, rethought or, uh, or reimagined with the very latest technology and science. That's why I'm, I'm optimistic, because I think we now are being forced into a situation of having to be creative and imaginative, but not to let go of what went before, but to use that as a source of inspiration for our future. Fantastic. I'm really impressed. I mean, I think this Emma Earth Rising is all about linking science, the arts, humanities, and trying to find ways we need to all connect across all our disciplines. So I think food is certainly a key aspect of that. So thank you very much, Dan. Good to talk. Thank you, Pat. The Earth Rising Festival sought to inspire solutions towards the creation of a sustainable future for our world through talks, panel discussions, and of course, on-site art installations. Lastly, we meet artist Amelia Caulfield, who shares her thoughts on harnessing creativity and right intention to generate climate activism. So my name is Amelia Caulfield. I'm an artist from Kilkenny, and I'm here at the Earth Rising Festival in IMA in Studio 10 with an interactive installation. So the installation is titled Nature Doesn't Do Binaries, Only Spectrums, and it's an interactive piece where it is inviting discussion and debate and deep reflection around the methods and uses and efficacy of different forms of activism. So in this space I have displayed themes, intentions and actions and I'm inviting people to choose a theme, an intention and an action and create their own activist strategy based on their choices. I initially kind of started this project with the idea of intention because I was thinking about what makes something effective or purposeful or useful and how do we define that. And I came across a body of work by Stephen Duncombe where he discusses um, how to measure the efficacy or usefulness or success of a project based on its intention. And there's actually no other way to, to measure it. If we're talking about kind of socially engaged art, that's a really great way to think about if it's successful or not. So some of the examples of some of the intentions I have display on display here, foster dialogue, alter perception, build community, transform someone's experience or reveal reality. One that I love is inspire dreaming. Um, so I think it's really important. Um, I had somebody come in a couple of minutes ago who again was saying like that's kind of the, that can be a bit of a missing piece sometimes um, to forget about intention and just go straight to the action. So personally, I'm really happy to kind of think about that and dive a bit deeply into it. So I hope that other people might do that as well in this space. Um, one of mine that I did up here is about climate anxiety and I chose reveal reality and do it in a public project. So I was thinking about how do I reveal internal stress publicly? Um, how do we visualize that, speak about it, have crowds, 
um, shouted from the rooftops is what I wrote and it's yeah I was just thinking about how to publicly convey that internal stress and anxiety um, that kind of leaves a lot of people feeling paralyzed in the face of those kind of injustices um, and then of course what can we do to manage that and manage our own capacity and look after ourselves in the face of all of that mm-hmm. that's that's the first one that came to my mind <laughs> also a big kind of inspiration for the energy of this work I suppose is the idea that play is the antidote to overwhelm and looking at making things more playful more gentle and that's how we can kind of sustain ourselves as well um, on these journeys of activism or creation. Kilkenny-based artist Amelia Caulfield there speaking about just one of the many art projects at the Earth Rising Festival 2023 that sought to highlight climate change issues. Thank you for listening to Code Red, the climate change podcast from the DCU Centre for Climate and Society. This episode was recorded at the Irish Museum of Modern Art during IMA's Earth Rising Festival 2023. Code Red is produced by Monica Hayes with help from sound engineer Owen Campbell from the DCU School of Communications. Thanks to Annie Fletcher, director of IMA, Lisa Fitzsimons, head of audience and development, and Dylan Kelly, intern at IMA, for facilitating this recording. Code Red is made in association with Deloitte, founding philanthropic partner of our DCU Centre.